Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with David Horesh. David, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, so uh, David uh, David Horish, I'm the head of marketing or uh, marketing director of uh, 4M Analytics. Um, uh, before that, I had my own uh, biz dev marketing firm. Uh, and before that, I had my own uh, failed uh, tech startup. Uh, so that, in a nutshell, is uh, my road to where, where I am today. Um, live in Israel. Uh, uh, although all of our uh, business is uh, in the U.S., uh, father, father to one daughter, and happily married. So, cool. That's me. That's very interesting. So, tell us more about your tech startup. Okay. Uh, so, actually, it, you know, they say that your failures are what teach you teach you the most, and I really, really believe that. Uh, so I had a tech startup actually in the defense homeland security sector. We were actually uh, uh, putting sensors on uh, on firearms so you can track uh, uh, special forces and uh, and soldiers in real time. Uh, I did about a decade in uh, Israeli special forces, uh, so that's kind of where I saw the uh, the problem. Uh, the problem was that. Uh, there was no situational awareness between uh, uh, between soldiers and their command. So teams would be in a field, find themselves in a difficult situation that always uh, starts with uh, with a gunfight. And in the command centers, nobody knew what was happening. Uh, so basically, we, we put a sensor system on a firearm, and every time you pulled the trigger, and uh, uh, basically the command centers would get an alert that there is an incident going on in the field, and the and be aware, and then you can see where the soldiers are pointing their firearms at, and where they're shooting at, and how much they're shooting, and you can base the, the situation without them reporting anything. And uh, what we did is uh, uh, we worked a bit with uh, the IDF, we worked a bit with uh, SOCOM in, uh, uh, in the US, and we got uh, great feedbacks, and we had a prototype, and we had demonstrations, and it was a whole lot of fun. And then it was, I think, the end of 2020, uh, the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, where we got uh, feedback from SOCOM saying, uh, guys, we love what, we, what you're doing. Uh, we'd love to fund your project. And I was like, yeah, finally, we're, we're on the right track. And uh, then they said, we'll put funding together in Q2 of 2022. And that was uh, the beginning of uh, 2020. I think it was January 2020. And that's when I realized that uh, 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 founding a startup in the tech, homeland, in the defense, homeland security industry is very rough because the sales cycles are just unbearably long. And when sales cycles are so long, and this happens often in the B2G spaces, um, it's just, it's not the right place to build a startup. So I... Uh, I got my uh, my co-founders together. I got the team together, and I said, "Guys, this isn't uh, this isn't how you build a startup, and uh, we need to we need to do something different." So after three two and a half three years of working on that, I kind of made the the tough call of uh, of shutting down, uh, unfortunately. But it's also kind of the journey of the three years of uh, teaching me how to do business and how to how to pitch and how to sell and uh, and how to uh, uh, how to communicate complex ideas 
and how to uh, convince decision makers that what you're doing is right, uh, it opened a lot of doors for me because a lot of people along the way kind of said, well, like, okay, so now you've uh, you've uh, shut down your own startup, but, uh, you know, we could use a guy like you. So uh, come help us uh, with business development. Come help us with marketing. Uh, come help us with operations. And then I, fi- I found myself with uh, a variety of, uh, of clients, mainly kind of seed stage, uh, early stage tech company and, uh, and technologies uh, that were asking for my help, my help. So quickly that grew and uh, uh, I needed to, to recruit uh, more people to help me. So I built a team around me, uh, three pe- like it was me and three other people uh, that, were, that basically helped me uh, provide services to these companies. And um, we did stuff in legal tech, and we did we did stuff in optic fibers and sensors, and uh, in silicon, uh, and we did stuff in uh, in telecom and in IoT, um, and a bit in defense, of course. Uh, and then that kind of uh, that that really expanded rapidly. And then one of my clients, uh, which just raised their first uh, seed round, which uh, are called 4M Analytics. Uh, so the CEO was, uh, was a friend. And he said to me, uh, David, come uh, look, I need your help. We just raised our first seed round. Uh, help us uh, with a bit of marketing. So we kind of get the, the ball rolling. And I was like, okay, like uh, I'll do it. Uh, I'll do it because you're my friend. Like I had uh, much bigger clients at the time. And uh, it wasn't, uh, let's say the 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 4M weren't uh, what was bringing in the money to the to the team that I built. Uh, they weren't they weren't paying the salaries. Um, but uh, because uh, Itzik the CEO was a friend, so uh, we worked together, and uh, and then that rapidly grew because the company rapidly grew. So when I when I started uh, giving them services, uh, providing services, they were they were a team of 16 people. Uh, three, three, four founders, uh, and a small team around them, uh, and basically we we built out the marketing function in the company, and then the company uh, quickly did some uh, some impressive PLCs, quickly brought in uh, some significant uh, customers, and basically proved uh, what they're doing, which we'll get into in a in a second, uh, and then the CEO. Uh, for a while kind of said, look, David, I want you to join the team. I want you to be part of the company. Uh, I'd like you to, to, to lead the marketing. And at the beginning, I didn't want to hear about it because uh, I had my own thing. I had my own, uh, my own company that, uh, that was on the right momentum, that was growing fast. And uh, we were doing really interesting things. And I, I just wasn't interested. Uh, and he kept uh, pushing and kept telling me, look, you need to be part of this. You need to get on the uh, on the rocket before we launch. Um, and I was uh, like, I was very persistent and this went back and forth for, uh, six months. And then, um, then I saw, uh, uh, Viola Ventures, which is one of the most significant VCs here in Israel. And I'd say even a significant VC worldwide that, uh, uh, were about to invest in the, in the company and lead the company's, uh, A round. And I saw uh, Raz, who was uh, leading the, the company's business development, close some uh, some significant deals. 
and then I realized that there was something in the company that was working right because you know so many tech companies they're they have a great idea but uh, but they find it very hard to prove that idea in in a business sense so it's it sounds good the technology is very impressive but but nobody's buying and because and when nobody's buying it's I don't I don't believe that 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 system works, that you put money into a company and then try and con convince people that you have uh, money as in capital and then you try and convince people that there's a technology that's uh, that gives value. I believe that first you need to prove that there's a business, that someone's actually willing to pay for the value that you're building, and then you go and raise capital and then you go and become a billion-dollar company. Um, and I felt that at that point, 4M did just that. And then I realized that there there is about to be a really really big company here. That uh, uh, at that point of my life, I wanted to be a part of something like that. I wanted to be part of something meaningful uh, that uh, that can give value at a global scale. Uh, so I made a, I made a choice between uh, uh, between a very good position that I was in to something that I believed could be better. And uh, I unfortunately shut down my own uh, uh, my own agency, uh, which was very very difficult, and uh, it was it was sad, but it was also a good thing because I joined this uh, thriving company that I'm really proud to be a part of today, and that uh, uh, I had the privilege of building out the the marketing team and the company and setting up the the foundations for the marketing. Uh, may, maybe I'll say a, a few words about about the company. I feel mm -hmm. like I've uh, yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, so uh, 4M Analytics. What we do is uh, uh, we're creating a global map of uh, of subsurface infrastructure. So today, when you want to put a, a gas line into the ground, or when you want to uh, pave a road, or um, or uh, uh, basically create a meaningful infrastructure, you need to dig. And when you dig or trench or excavate, often we hit existing infrastructure and damage it. And that happens about half a million times a year uh, in the United States alone because uh, the data, like you, you should, we should have a map before we dig and know what's below us. But the problem is that the data uh, of provide that uh, the data that should depict where these buried uh, infrastructures and buried utilities are, well, first of all, it isn't accessible, and second of all, it isn't accurate. So what we do is we take a combination of uh, satellite imagery and artificial intelligence, and we're able, by looking at uh, uh, all sorts of visual evidence, detect what's buried and where. So for example, if we see a line of uh, uh, manholes one after each other, so we can understand what's buried beneath it. And if we look at satellite imagery that go, goes back uh, 20 years and we see an excavator uh, digging a ditch and pipelines next to it, so we know that there's uh, about to be a pipeline buried there. And we take all this variety of information and mounts of data and we kind of put it all together into one visual uh, map. Uh, and until, until, uh, until now, what we've been doing is we've been... Uh, 
selling these maps as a service. So a company would reach out to us and say, hey, this is the location of the project that I want to go build. Uh, please give me a map of the, uh, of the subsurface utility data in this area. And we would put the location into our system and come back with a map. But what we're actually building and we're about to, to launch in, the, in a few months is uh, sort of a Google Earth of the subsurface. So basically, uh, our customers would get access to a platform very similar to Google Earth, and they could pick a place on the map and just see the, uh, the infrastructure in that area. Um, so uh, I said at the beginning that the, the company's mission is to create a global map of the subsurface, um, but we're starting out with the, the U.S., and in the U.S., we're starting out with, uh, with Texas because uh, there's a lot of infrastructure that's going to be built in Texas in the, the next 12 months at least. Um, so, yeah. Wow. Uh, that, that's, what, that's what we're doing as a company. That's very interesting, and it sounds like yeah. a really good candidate for augmented reality if you were on a work site and you could kind of see wow. an overlaid image don't get me started there <laughs> there's so many there's so many uh, uh 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 augmented reality companies in the space at the moment they're trying to visualize all sorts of data and infrastructure uh whether it's a uh, uh, subsurface utility data or whether it's uh, uh flaws in construction or uh, where things are going to be built. Um, but the problem in our space is that the core data just, well, like I said, it's not accessible. Like, so you, you can't find it because when it was created in the 70s, so it was locked up at some cabinet at the, that sits in the basement in a, where people don't even remember where it is. And that's one. And even the, like if you find it, so you can't rely on the data because uh, sometimes the contractors in the field make changes to the design and they don't update it in the original plans. Um, so when that happens, obviously you kind of you go into the field and you base it on what you've seen in this and uh, what what's called as built, which is the the uh, these files of utility data, and you base your plans on it, and it just is inaccurate. And then what happens is you go into the field and you start digging and then there's an explosion or then there's a water main that bursts and uh, you got to start clearing that up and closing roads and, uh, uh, and uh, getting kind of um, uh, bypassing basically the, the utilities and relocating them. And uh, yeah, there's all sorts of uh, damages that happen from that. So, yeah. And what about relying on satellite data and AI, is that completely reliable? Or is it a case of always trying to get the best guess? Yeah. Uh, so so what's nice, what's impressive, not nice, what's impressive with satellite imagery is that it's visual evidence, right? Like when somebody writes, uh, marks uh, something on a, uh, with a uh, paper and pencil on a map, so it's it's it could be subjective, but when you look at satellite imagery and when you see an excavator digging a ditch, that's the location of the ditch. There's no like there's no there's no argument about it because you can see the image, you can see the location, and all you need to do is draw a line on the ditch that the excavator is digging, and when you see uh, twenty manholes uh, uh, in a row, one after each, one after the other. So you can assume with very high confidence 
that there's uh, some sort of pipeline going between them with not much deviations. Deviations can happen. Like we're not saying we're perfect. And I'd say that uh, until you touch the pipe, until you touch the utility in the ground, nothing's certain. But when you want to plan and when you want to, uh, when you want to create the first, uh, when you want to go through the initial stages of design, so you need to have some sort of understanding of what's in the field, and that's where we come in handy because today the only way to get that data is bring in a crew of uh, two, four, ten, fifty, uh, fifty guys into the field. They kind of go back and forth scanning the. Uh, the roads with different uh, different uh, tech equipment uh, like radars and magnets and all sorts of sensors. Uh, and that's something that's very important but very difficult to scale because you're, you can do that for a mile, two miles, but with satellite imagery you can look at 50 miles. And it's a very different scale. So, yeah. And uh, so on the topic of scale, but more related to marketing can you talk about the value of marketing for a business uh, like this one where um, you already have a good product market fit versus another product that doesn't have as good of a product market fit yet so i'd i'd actually argue that uh, to claim that you have product market fit you need to prove that you have uh, you have scale and uh, to be honest, like we're, we're not at that point yet, right? We, we've ju we're just about to uh, to launch our first uh, general available product. Uh, so I think I think the market hasn't really judged us yet. Like we have the initial traction and uh, uh, what we call Map as a service, but we haven't yet proved the product led growth model, uh, which we're we're going to to uh, walk down this this uh, track now. Uh, but but I'd say that what's what's cool about uh, doing marketing at this stage of the company is that you're really forming the go-to-market strategy of the company, because you know marketers we we love to to come into to the company to start working with the company when it has product market fit, and the reason why we love working with companies that have product market fit is because. Well, our life is easy. We know who our uh, ICP, ideal customer profile, is. We know what its uh, pain points are. Uh, we know what type of messaging. We know we know which platforms they live on, and we already have an understanding of all these things that are essential to do proper marketing. But at this, when you're at an early stage uh, tech company that's still building out the product and trying to uh, to gain uh, initial traction in the market, um, a lot of these questions aren't answered, and you need to do the uh, the legwork of going to figure them out uh, yourself. And I, I love that stage because it's building something from scratch, and that's uh, that's my passion, like taking something that's uh, zero and turning it into one. And, you know, it's also like I think it's the most challenging stage to do marketing in a tech company because, well, first of all, you have no data. And second of all, marketing is, is rough. Like if you're doing it right, marketing can take you three to six months to just see the initial traction. Just like even if you know who your ICP is and even if you know 
uh, you know, uh, the, where they live, whether it's LinkedIn or Facebook or TikTok or uh, if they have industry channels or whatever it is. Uh, it's it's a journey that you need to, to go through. There's a lot of A-B testing to, to be done. Like you start uh, with one type of messaging, you figure out that it doesn't work. And then you figure out it. Uh, uh, the reason why it doesn't work is because the people who like it aren't your ICP. But then you figure out, well, maybe they, maybe we should make them our ICP. And if they are our, our ICP, so they have different pain points than the other ICP that we have. And then we need to figure out these new pain points and and uh, research them and uh, learn them and then and then apply them to this uh, this new uh, new persona that uh, that we found. And then we find out that this persona actually has a bigger audience, not on platform X, which could have been Facebook, for example, but they have a bigger audience on LinkedIn. And then we transfer all our marketing assets to LinkedIn. And uh, so there's there's all these implications that you need to uh, you need to learn. And as startups to startups, you need to learn them quickly. Um, and and the to at the beginning, like when I joined the company, I told my CEO something that was uh, very difficult for the leadership of the company to hear. But I said, guys, you can't talk to me for six months. Don't expect anything for six months. I don't want to hear the words ROI. I don't want you measuring me. There's going to be a lot of experimenting now. And for six months, I was like, like and, and it's very difficult for a CEO to make that decision, like not measure uh, a, a critical function in the company for six months, and uh, and, and I'm very grateful that uh, that uh, our CEO gave me this uh, this opportunity because uh, nearly to the uh, to the point, I think it was like uh, about four months in that we suddenly started to see the initial traction and and, and meaningful traction. When I say that, I mean inbounds. Suddenly, uh, uh, companies that fit our ICP uh, that we knew that we could give value to started reaching out to the company. And at that point, I knew, okay, marketing is on the right track. Because that means that you have, well, well look, it, first of all, like there's, there's sometimes there's an expectation from marketing that, okay, we put out one LinkedIn post and that's it. People like uh, the, the customers uh, should be pouring in. And marketing doesn't work like that. Marketing is a is a consistent uphill battle. It's uh, like we're, we we live on LinkedIn, and we have a very strong company page that uh, uh, that we use to distribute content. So we we create lots of very meaningful organic content. We use memes. Uh, we 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 tell industry jokes. Uh, we have a podcast. We put clips from from our podcast and. It took us time to create content that our audience, our, our ICP, loved. And when, how do I know that they love it? Because they share, they comment, they start meaningful conversations on, uh, on, based on our ideas. And when you do that, so you know that uh, you're moving something in the industry. Something, something is happening. And... And it, and it takes time, even though you see these conversations and you see the likes and you see like every now and then one of your posts go viral, the company post, right? Company page. And when you see that happening at the beginning, it's like, okay, so where's, where's the revenue? 
where are the inbounds that uh, that I was promised? So where where's the ROI? And it it takes time. It re it really does take take time. But once you have that momentum, once you have that momentum, it's very hard to stop. Like you can't just turn it off. I, I really believe that efforts you put into marketing today, uh, you should you should take into account that you're only going to see those efforts in six months. And if you turn off marketing now, you're only going to see that turn off, that uh, downhill in the uh, in the graph in six months' time. Yeah, and uh, it sounds like you know you you have a lot of focus on that ideal customer profile. And can you explain or speak to the importance of understanding the end user as a marketing organization? Look, I think that there's. There's ne nearly nothing uh, more important besides your team in the in the company than your customer. And when I say that the customer is important, I mean that it's it's important to understand them. And marketers, I think, need to understand the customer so they can show it empathy. There's a, there's a word in the uh, which language is it? I think it's it's Zulu. The Zulu word for high is sawubona, but the but the real meaning is of uh, of this word is I see you. <clears throat> and we, we as humans, all we want to do is we want to be seen. And like every each each one of us, we want to be seen. We want to be recognized for uh, the wonderful things that we do, and we also want to be seen when we need help. Uh, so, so what I'm trying to say is that we want empathy. And unfortunately, most companies fail to show their customers empathy. Because what do we love to, to do as customers? We, we love to do the opposite. We just, we just can't help ourselves. So we love to show off uh, our product's features. We like to name drop uh, our customers and announce our last funding round. Uh, and, and it's ridiculous. Because funding announcements are what are are, uh, are are not what create affection between our ICP and our brand, right? Like, like don't don't get me wrong that there's a place for all of these, but um, for some non-surprising reason, they're not what help build a relationship between us and the people that we want to help. Empathy does, and how do we show how do we show them empathy? We need to share their burden. We need to talk about the pains, the challenges, the misfortunes that they endure in their day to day. And and let's let's maybe put this into real world context for a second. Uh, our friends, our best friends, they've they've owned that title because we love listening to how wonderful they are, or or they owned it because uh, they share our highs and lows. Right, being with us for every step of the way. Okay, I'm I'm getting a bit a bit dramatic, but uh, being realistic, uh, that that's never going to be the type of the relationship we have with our customers. Okay, but but I would argue that the same principles hold. Our customers will want to work with us if we give them the feeling that we understand what they're going through, that we care about them, and that we have made it our life's mission to fix their problem. 
And I think, like, if you look at our, our company's posts, you're never going to see a post saying, we're 4M, we're so awesome, uh, we do all this amazing stuff, we've done this, we've done that, that's not what we do. Each post, each piece of content that we put out is about a problem or a pain that our customer uh, is dealing with. Whether it's something new that has happening, happened in the industry, a new regulation that is going to make everyone's lives hard. It's about um, a specific use case that is very, very complex and different to solve. And we don't say 4M is going to solve this. We say, we, we say that the, the category the category is going to solve it. Like our category, for example, is uh, utility intelligence or utility mapping. Like we say, you need to do utility mapping. Right? If you want to solve this issue, you, you, like we don't care if it's 4M or someone else, but you need to be mapping your utilities. That's the only way to solve this issue. And we don't, we don't talk about how we do it. We don't say AI and satellite imagery, and I'll tell you why. Because nobody wants to be pitched. Nobody loves being pitched. What we want to do is we want to do our, our own research. We want to uh, scroll our feed and we want to come across a post that we like, that is insightful, that teaches us something new. And if it does, so I'm going to look at, uh, for a second at the header and see who wrote it. Because when I'm scrolling in LinkedIn, I don't, don't, don't always look at who wrote it. And when I see, well, 4M Analytics wrote this post, so I'm going to click that profile. And when I click that profile, that's where, where you're going to see our pitch. You're going to see we're building a map, the first uh, digital map of the, the subsurface. We do this for this, these types of organizations that are building these types of projects. And that's when you're going to see our pitch, when you came to research us. I totally yeah. agree. Yeah, it sounds like you're taking a really humble tone in your marketing which sounds like it would work really well. Yeah, we're we're making uh, an effort to look. I think that uh, um, expressing the fact that you're on a journey and not that you know everything is very very powerful. Because then you you manage to uh, recruit, lack of a better word, um, your audience to your journey. Because now, when you look at the, the comments of our posts, not every post, but a lot of them, you can see, wow, uh, Tamal, which is uh, our demand gen manager who, who, who creates the content, uh, you've really blown my mind on this one. Like, how hysterical in this? Like, or, or supporting the message of what we wrote and put together. And, and it, makes, it makes people reach out to us and say, wow, I saw your post, that really hit me. Like I saw what I saw what you wrote. I saw your comment to your own post, and there's like there's a sense of uh, community that forms around your mission when you make it about them and not about you. Yeah, and um, it sounds like the audience almost should precede the the precede the product uh, in in a sense that you ha you should be building a product or a solution around an existing audience rather than kind of hoping that the audience will come? Always. Um, 
You know, I think I think that's uh, part of the reason why a lot of companies fail because they don't really understand the the customer. They don't really understand the people that they're uh, that they're trying to help. And when when you don't really understand them, it's very difficult to solve their problem, right? Because what we hear, what 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 are companies about? Companies are about solving problems and getting paid for doing so. And if you can't solve their problem, you're not going to be paid for it because there's nothing to be to be paid for. So it all starts with understanding your customer. And if you want to leverage that, like, and this is what I think smart uh, smart founders and entrepreneurs do, they build an ecosystem around their uh, their problem and around their mission. And to, to be honest, we're very fortunate to have uh, to be solving a, a problem that is in such a niche space. You know, solving a problem for marketers today is, is very, very difficult because there are just so many marketing problems, right? There's attribution and there's privacy and there's uh, CRMs and there's, uh, uh, there's creative um, and there's operations and there's, there's all, these, all these things. And... The, the market, it's like it's a red ocean, right? Or red sea, I'm not, not quite, uh, don't quite remember the term, but uh, it's very difficult to create an impact in such an environment where there's so much noise because everyone's trying to solve problems for, for marketers. But we, we've fortunately uh, found ourselves in a space where there's, a, there's one very, very big problem and... And a lot of very old um, or uh, legacy solutions. So there hasn't been a digital solution in our space for a very, very long time. Um, and like when you look at the marketing space, that's definitely not the case. I want to ask about marketing uh, and the different goals that a marketing organization may have depending on the type of business. And so the different types of businesses that I'm referring to are B2B, B2C, and something you mentioned, B2G. So how does the marketing function differ across these three types of businesses? You know, I think, I think it's, um, my, my, my main experience is in B2B. I've done a lot of, uh, a lot of B2G, but I'd say that the the principles in marketing, at least, are the same. I, I wouldn't know to speak too much for, for B2C, but, but my gut tells me that at the end of the day, the people we want to give value to, whether it's a, a candy bar or it's a SaaS, uh, uh, a SaaS platform or for a business or for a government, it's we need to communicate to our customers in the places where they spend time ideas that uh, that give them value and i think i think it doesn't like if you're i think that the tactics are what would differ cuz if you were doing a b2c so you're probably more on uh, on instagram and uh, and tiktok Although TikTok is going very, like there's a lot of B2B content on it. And if you're doing B2B, so you're probably on LinkedIn. And if you're doing B2G, so you're on LinkedIn and maybe other, uh, maybe maybe it's industry events. Maybe it's not even digital. Maybe. 
that by the way that all goes back to how how well do you understand your uh your customer um and i think i think the the core is the same but the the tactics are probably different the channels are probably different um that that's what my gut feeling says yeah that makes a lot of sense um the the principles of marketing are the same across different kinds of businesses um it's it, you know you're, you're still serving the end user you're still clarifying the value to that user um and and acting almost as a, a communication channel between the business and the customer yeah and the places where they where they spend time which now is is mainly digital like i, I have a saying i'm very uh a, a lot of people, especially in, in our in our industry, which is very, uh, uh, I'd say non non digital in its core, is that if you're not scrolling, like if you if you're not turning up in someone's feed where they scroll, you don't exist. Everybody is on a social media platform, whether it's Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, Facebook. Um, uh, Twitter, wherever it is, everyone is scrolling from uh, 70-year-olds and 8-year-olds to 16-year-olds. Everyone is doing it. And and if you, you, you need to find a way to get on the platform where your ICP lives and you need to find a way to target them. And this is this is like there's lots of tactics here, right? Like in some platforms, it's hashtags. In some platforms, you need to uh, promote your content. Like I can tell you that our promoted our ads on LinkedIn are are the same content we put on our company page, like the same organic content. Like if we see uh, uh, a piece of content that does well organic. We'll put money behind it and make sure that it gets exactly to the audience that we want we want it to get to. Because on every one of these platforms, you have different levels of targeting. On LinkedIn, I think LinkedIn I think is the best, right? I think that uh, in no other platform can you target by company and by title and by geography like like you can do on LinkedIn. So I can just for example, I can uh, upload a list of uh, Fortune 500 companies. And specific the geography to New York and uh, and Silicon Valley, and say I want uh, I want VPs uh, the seniority to be VPs and up, and those are the people that are going to see my my content. And that's like you can basically have an ad saying if you're a VP in a Fortune 500 company living in New York or Silicon Valley, well this ad is for you. And it doesn't really matter what you put behind the ad because, um, because it's basically besides calling their name out, you told them everything. Like they're going to stop in the feed. They may or may not click, right? But they they've stopped to to read what you have to say, and there's a good chance that they will click. And if they click and you give them value, well, then you've won. I want to ask about your leadership skills that you've built. And what what did you have to build to become an effective leader? So I think I owe a lot of this to my military service. Um, I think that, you know, there's like at the end of the day when we're doing business, it's just uh, it's just a sport, right? We're just we're just moving numbers around, we're moving people around. It's not. 
uh, it's not life or death situations. Okay, it's very emotional, right? Like sports is emotional. Like if you're playing football or soccer or basketball or whatever your sport is, like it's intense, right? You want to win. And I think in business, we want to win. Like there's a lot of adrenaline. There's lots of, uh, there's lots of ego. There's lots of people that uh, uh, there's lots of uh, aggressiveness, um, uh, which are all, in my opinion, which are all uh, good things. But, in, but I think it's just a sport. And when you have that mindset that it's just a sport and there's nobody's going to die tomorrow, it's very, very calm. And when you're calm, so there's no reason to uh, raise your voice. There's no reason to get uh, angry with someone. There's no reason uh, to lose your temper. Because what you want to do is you want to win. There's no problem in being very assertive. And what, like, if if a team member isn't uh, performing, it's okay to be assertive and say, "Hey, like, step it, step up your game." Like, that's that's not what we're here to do, right? But I think that uh, um, uh, that the best way to to communicate. Like to, to a team member that uh, you want something to change or you want something done better is from a, this is where we're at now. This is where we need to go. And like, it's up to you to how you want to, you want to get it done. Right. And, and like when you let, when you let your team members do their own thing, wow. It's like, and you, and, and like going back to what I said before about like not, not losing your tempo, it's like, let them make mistakes. They're good. Like we, I, I have yet to meet a person that hasn't made a mistake, right? Like the, the, it doesn't really exist. So, so they made a mistake. Okay, you know, I make mistakes every day. Like when I'm, uh, like uh, when I have meetings with my CEO and he's not happy with things that I do, and he lets me make mistakes, and I let my team make mistakes, and we all, uh, like, we're, we all assume that we're all working hard to fix them. And if, like, if you have a team member that's not working hard to uh, fix their mistakes, well, that's that's a different problem, right? But uh, I really believe that if you give give your team the responsibility to to do their own thing, like, and you say, hey, you're head of whatever this is, and if they're head of, okay, I'm head of something. Like, I'm responsible to make this work. Like, I've not been micromanaged, instructed to. Uh, to, like I haven't been uh, been fed with a spoon, like how I'm supposed to do this every step of the way, right? I've just been given. Look, this is a task. Go do it. And like as as the leader or manager or, or however you want to call it, you can say, "Hey, look, pay, just pay attention when you're doing this. Just pay attention to this. Like just like maybe there's one thing you want done in a very specific way, so you you say that one thing. But if you're telling them exactly you're telling your team exactly how to do something you're not giving them any freedom and you're not giving them any responsibility and if you're not giving them responsibility they're not going to be accountable because you've told them how to do it so you're accountable and well i just i just don't like doing that it's not it's not fun letting like micromanaging people like i i'd really rather work with people who just uh, say okay got it uh, talk to you in a week when it's done like if if your team isn't like that, so it's uh, I just I'd uh, 
Well, I just really recommend working in this this type of environment because it's just so it's just so uh, it's freedom. How do you contrast that against some of the like agile style team uh, uh, working relationships where you're meeting almost every day and going through tasks and such? Well, I, I think that if uh, look, I, I, first of all, it depends, right? It depends on the environment. It depends on what you need to get done. It depends on the risk levels of the the project. Look, there's some projects. There's some. Uh, uh, things that you need to meet every day. So if you're like if you're uh, coming up to a, pro- a product launch, right? So maybe the two weeks beforehand you're meeting every day because there's lots to get done and you need to be on top of things all the time. But if there's not like a big uh, big battle coming up, why do you need to meet every day? Like I, I have, I have a weekly with uh, with my team. If there's like I have a one-on-one with uh, each of them, um, like if there's anything specific, so I call them, get my uh, get my information, or they call me if they have a question, and like I trust them to uh, to work with each other. Like we're we're a team, we do this together. So and I don't need to be in those meetings. Um, and I'll tell you the truth, as long as I see a result at the end of the week, as long as like the tasks have, have, uh, have been accomplished, um, I, I don't need to, to kind of be hands-on all the time. It gives me a lot of freedom and it gives them a lot of freedom to, uh, to be that. I just don't think it's efficient to, to meet every day and know about everything that's, uh, that's going on. As a leader, I don't think that you need to know about everything that's going on. You're, uh, don't get me wrong. You're responsible, right? If there is, if something uh, uh, doesn't work well, like if something, if there's a huge failure, even if you didn't like, it, if you didn't know the process that led to it, it's your fault. As leaders, we don't need to be in the in the details of everything. It's just, at bottom line, it's just not effective. Uh, it's just not a, the right investment of time. You just need to make sure that the that we uphold the KPIs and the OKRs, and we we make we we continue the momentum that we're trying to to generate. And if we do that, well, so so I think we're we're good. I think that means that we're on the right track. Do you have any advice for how to own up to mistakes that that you make as a leader? Uh, just to be very very direct when when they happen, and to be like, hey. Uh, uh, hey, hey, boss! Hey, uh, CEO! Hey, uh, manager! Hey, whoever it is, uh, this is what happened. This is uh, uh, what I did. It's my fault. That's the first thing that you say. You say it's my fault. It's my responsibility. Because that's uh, if you've been on the other side of that call, that's all you want to hear. That's all you want to hear. You want to hear that the person that you're working with has understood that they dropped the ball. Because if they they uh, uh, take ownership of that, well, then that's a, that's perfectly fine because we can continue working together. But if they don't take ownership of that, we have a much bigger problem, which is a lack of ownership and lack of uh, lack of self self awareness. Because you can help someone become better professionally. You can teach them uh, how to uh, how to go through a, a CRM. You can teach them 
how to manage a sales call. You can teach them how to create content. You can do a lot of things. But ownership is something that, that that's a core. Um, that, that I don't, don't even say it's a skill, but it's, it's part of who you are. And if you're not able to take ownership, well, that's a that's a uh, um, that's an entirely different conversation because there's a good chance of parting ways after that. So, best uh, best advice, no matter who you are at uh, what stage, first of all, take ownership of your failure. Then explain like how did we get here, and then let's talk about what we do from here, because that's like uh, one time I. Uh, uh, one of my t- my teammates, uh, she she came up to me and she said, "Oh, this uh, terrible thing happened." And I'm like, "Okay, so so what are we gonna do about it?" And then she presented her idea of like how to tackle the situation. I said, "Okay, so go fix it, and that's okay." And I'd say I'd say another thing that when you're a leader, that kind of gives that uh, um, that calmness. Like that, you don't get upset from every small hiccup in the uh, in the process. So it gives your team a lot of confidence. And going back to what I said before, a lot of freedom, a lot, a lot of freedom. And people, when they have freedom, they perform the best. So similar to leadership, but more on the business building side. Do you have any entrepreneurship advice for someone who's looking to start their own business? Until you don't have until the point where you have a customer, someone who's paid for your value, you don't have a business. You have an idea that demands execution. And I'd say that in the, the bubble is, has began to burst a bit uh, in, in the past month or two uh, with everything that's happening in the tech industry, but I think that for too long, uh, the tech industry has has uh, grown on nice ideas that have raised uh, large amounts, uh, large sums of capital that haven't been able to execute. And I think that's created a false narrative of success amongst these companies that uh, uh, that have raised capital but haven't uh, managed to, uh, to sell their value. So they've raised a lot of, a lot of money. They've raised millions of dollars, but, but have they sold anything? Because selling something is the indication that a business is going to succeed or not. If you haven't sold anything yet, you're, you're, you're in a pro- you've got a problem. And I'd say that uh, if you're... Uh, look, I failed. Right, like my my uh, my my, my uh, first company failed. My second company, which was a service company, succeeded and not, and not opened a lot of doors for me and gave me a lot of opportunities. And the reason, one of the reasons why I joined for him, is that I wanted to sit at the decision make making table of a company that I believe is going to massively succeed. And I believe that 4M is giving me this uh, uh, th- this opportunity. So, uh, and because because down the road where I see myself is again back in that entrepreneur seat, because I love building things from the from the ground up. But I can I can tell you from failing and succeeding and 
being part of another success, um, I think that having a business, being able to prove that you have someone who's willing to pay for your value, that's that's the core. That's the core. Final question. What was your original career expectations for yourself, maybe when you were in school, and how has that changed over time? Wow. Uh, I thought that I was going to be working in Homeland Security for all my life. I thought I was going to be living in an action film. And and, uh, by, by the way, I love... I love uh, the space of Homeland Security. I really believe in the, the mission, the cause, and uh, uh, protecting people's lives. I think it's uh, there's very little things that are, that are as satisfying as doing stuff like that. But the problem is with big organizations is that uh, everything needs to be approved by the, uh, the supervisor of the supervisor of the supervisor. And uh, having... Uh, the uh, fast-paced spirit that I have, that was very, very difficult to me because I didn't have the patience to, to wait for everyone to approve my uh, tiny changes and tiny ideas. And especially when I wanted to build something uh, something big for an organization, like it just, the it was just too heavy to lift. So I started doing my own things and my own businesses. And, uh, and suddenly, like I was, again, I was free. I was free to move big mountains as fast as I wanted when I wanted. Um, So I think that's also why I moved to, 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 I got into tech because tech is just, the the pace is just so quick. It just, everything is just so fast. Like, Like 4M, I started giving them services when they were uh, providing services when they were 16 people. I joined the company when they were 50. I uh, The company is now a bit over 100 people. And all this has happened in the course of um, uh, just, uh, just above 12 months. And that's, that, that's not something that happens. Like that's not something that happens in uh, if you work uh, uh, for a government agency. It's not hap- something that happens if you work for uh, things that are out of the tech industry. I think I think or th- at least I'm not familiar with. I think that the tech industry gives you an opportunity to see how things can scale and fast and 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 it's not just about being fast. It's about being global. Whatever you do, you can impact an industry on a global scale, all because of technology. And I'm very, very appreciative and thankful for that. Wow. Well, thank you for for your great insight, David. I want to thank you again for coming on. Thank you for for inviting me. This, This has been a blast. I really enjoyed the conversation. Awesome. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon.